Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. By now, many of our regular listeners have heard past discussions about reparations on this, uh, on this program and the historical basis for this pursuit. The demand for reparations grows from the history of racial oppression and repression which have been directed toward African-Americans since the enslavement period. And as a result of a continuing history of racially directed violence and the old Jim Crow discrimination. Seeking to address this long arm impact of this treatment, Dr. Sandy Darity, this country's leading voice, scholar and researcher of the demands for reparation has recently authored a needed book on this topic the Black Reparations Project, a handbook for racial justice. This handbook sets out a roadmap for why reparations is necessary and provide an excellent guide for how to achieve this goal. This book is certainly timely since its release occurs just as there is a surge in interest in obtaining reparations of some type. California is one of the many states in which presently wrestling with this topic, as are a number of different cities around the country. But those plans fall short of the magnitude of the reparations demand that Dr. Darity has calculated. Tonight, we will discuss the Black Reparations Handbook with Dr. Darity. Dr. Darity is the Samuel DeVos Cook Professor of Public Policy, African and African-American Studies and Economics, and is the founding director of the Samuel DeVos Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke University. Sandy, thank you for joining us this evening. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Okay. Uh, I, I should mention though at the outset that the Black Reparations Project, a handbook for racial justice is actually an edited volume. And uh, the editors are uh, Kirsten Mullen, um, Lucas Hubbard and myself. And so it contains a set of essays that were written by members of what we call the Reparations Planning Committee. Uh, one of the contributors is actually uh, Malik Edwards, a faculty member in the law school. All right. Our associate dean. And uh, we were certainly going to give uh, credit and acknowledgement to him and the other authors of, of that. Uh, but for our audience, uh, and I know some of them have uh, heard you uh, before, others have not. Uh, so can you just start us off by, once again, by talking about why reparations is uh, owed to uh, African-Americans in this country? Well, the focus on, of the work that, that I, I've done primarily with Kirsten Mullen has been on uh, the significance of the racial wealth gap in the United States, uh, which we view as uh, a single critical indicator of the cumulative 
cross-generational effects of white supremacy. Uh, and those effects are manifest in living descendants of persons who were enslaved in the United States in the form of an enormous gulf in wealth between black and white Americans. Uh, we estimate that the total amount of that differential is approximately $14.3 trillion. And we argue that it originates through a set of policies that were pursued by the federal government. First set of policies that we highlight in our work are the policies associated with land reform at the end of the uh, 19th century. And I, I'm using the term reform uh, with air quotations around it. Um, the federal government promised the newly emancipated uh, 40 acre land grants as restitution for their years of bondage. And that was a promise that was not kept. But on the other hand, the federal government delivered 160 acre land grant parcels to one and a half million white families in the Western territories as it completed its colonial settler project uh, across across the expanse of of North America, uh, though that that 1.5 million white families constitutes approximately 10 percent of the U.S. population, circa 1900 and 1910. So that's an enormous share of white Americans who received these these 160 acre land grants. And uh, Trina Williams Shanks, a faculty member at the University of Michigan, estimates more recently that about 45 million living white Americans continue to be beneficiaries of those of those land grants. So from our perspective, that land reform policy at the end of the uh, 19th century lays the foundation for the racial wealth gap that we observe today because it provided whites with a significant step up in terms of intergenerational wealth, uh, a step up that was denied to, uh, to black Americans. Um, then in the 20th century, the federal government shifts away from a focus on land distribution as a mechanism for building assets and turns towards uh, home, home ownership as a, a critical means of building assets. But it does this in a fiercely discriminatory fashion, so that um, as a consequence with respect to the use of redlining, uh, the discriminatory application of the GI Bill to returning veterans from World War II, you had a situation in which um, uh, a white middle class was developed primarily through the mechanism of the federal government supporting home ownership while a black middle class did not come into existence on that same scale or to the same degree. Um, and then finally, in the 20th century, I should make mention of the, the policies that the federal government uh, pursued with respect to so-called urban renewal or slum clearance, in which uh, effectively highways were run through the heart of uh, a number of black communities across the country, uh, I would say probably upwards of 25 to 30 black communities were subjected to this and their business districts were destroyed in the process. Durham is one example of, of, of that particular uh, pattern. Um, on top of all of that, it's worth mentioning that uh, between the end of the Civil War and, the, uh, and, and World War II, 
there were a series of 100 massacres that took place under the regime of legal segregation in the United States. And these massacres involved not only the loss of Black lives, but the seizure and appropriation of Black-owned property by the white terrorists. And so all of these factors contributed to the building and development of this racial wealth gap that we uh, we observe we observe today. Okay. Now I know that you have been uh, studying this issue uh, for uh, for years, and you have uh, obviously uh, become the uh, I guess uh, what I will call the top spokesperson uh, in this uh, area, the top advocate uh, for uh, for reparations. But as of late. There's been uh, an upsurge in interest uh, in the topic of rep rep reparations by many around the country. So, first of all, can you talk a little bit about why you why has there been this upsurge in in interest and the limitations that uh, this interest uh, seem to uh, uh, showcase? Well, uh, I, I I appreciate your generosity in describing me as the, the leading advocate. I, I I definitely don't think I'm that, uh, but I hope that you know maybe the research contributions that I've made can push this push this movement forward. Um, let let me start by saying that there are some grounds for optimism. Uh, in the year 2000. Uh, a study that was done by a couple of researchers at the University of Chicago. Uh, Ravana Popoff and Michael Dawson found that 4% of white Americans endorsed monetary payments as reparations for black Americans. Uh, today, uh, at, at the beginning of this year, a survey that was conducted by a team of researchers at the University of Massachusetts found that it was closer to 30% of white Americans that endorsed monetary payments as reparations. And I think that it's that change in sentiment that also accounts for the kind of backlash that we have observed against things like so-called critical race theory uh, in in many uh, in many uh, public schools uh, uh, boards uh, throughout the country in 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 recent months. Um, so um, so so I think that there's a foundation for building a successful movement to produce uh, reparations, which has been denied for close to 160 years in the United States uh, to the uh, black American descendants of US slavery. Um, so, so that said, why is there an upsurge in interest now? Uh, and that's a great question. And I'm not sure I have a very good answer to it. Um, I do think that, um, there was uh, a high degree of attention that was drawn to the reparations question at the beginning of this new century, uh, when uh, when when a, um, a a hostile voice against reparations, uh, David Horowitz, put out an advertisement that was circulated across university newspapers. Uh, arguing that there were 10 reasons why reparations was a bad idea. Uh, and I think that actually that triggered uh, a high degree of conversations about reparations uh, on the nation's campuses, although not necessarily in the public sphere in general. But then uh, we had 9-11 and, um, and the conversation about reparations uh, vanished with a host of other conversations that were overwhelmed by the events of the, uh, the attack 
the terrorist attacks that took place on on September 11, um, 2001. And so um, we had a high degree of silence about uh, reparations until Tanasi Coates put out an article that gained a significant amount of attention in 2014 that was published in The Atlantic. Um, and what was notable about that article was, uh, unlike many many um, cases that have been made for reparations uh, that focused exclusively on the harms of slavery, Tanasi Coates's article looked at the atrocities that had taken place since slavery had ended that directly shaped the kinds of inequalities that we're talking about now. But uh, after that article was published and created somewhat of a stir, things went silent again. Um, and I think that the moment in which we had a strong reversal in terms of attention being drawn to reparations really seems to be associated with the early phase of the presidential campaign for 2020. In 2019, three of the presidential candidates actually endorsed reparations for Black Americans. Uh, Marion Williamson, um, Tom Steyer, and, um, and now I'm going to forget his name, <laughs> but the uh, uh, but the candidate from uh, the the Latino candidate who was from San Antonio, Texas, mm -hmm. uh, and and the three of them all said that they were in favor of reparations for Black Americans, although only Marion Williamson offered any specifics, which was uh, to say that she thought at maximum, uh, it should be an expenditure of about $500 billion, which uh, at the time I said was a paltry number. And it is a paltry number in comparison with the $14.3 trillion figure. But, uh, but once they did that, uh, it was a moment in which reparations suddenly became a topic of conversation that was on the national platform. Uh, and, and it stayed on the national platform. And I think that the events of 2020, particularly uh, the, uh, the execution, the highly visible murder of George Floyd uh, resulted in, uh, uh, in, in, in renewed and strengthened attention to uh, reparations. And for whatever reason, it seems to have stayed on the national consciousness uh, as an issue that people are now taking uh, taking seriously, um, and so uh, I'm 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 hopeful that we can build on that uh, to produce the uh, comprehensive reparations plan that we actually need in the United States. Okay, this is the uh, Legal Eagle Review, and we are talking with uh, Dr. William Darity, uh, Sandy Darity, as he's known uh, to uh, many of us, and we're talking about uh, reparations and uh, the. Uh, a recent uh, publication of a reparations uh, handbook uh, for uh, for social justice. Uh, we are going to continue this discussion, but right now we're going to take a break. I want you to uh, stay with us, and we will be right back. Hello, this is Shantae McNeil, and I'm a second-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your weekly announcement. If you recall, a few episodes ago, we discussed Private Booker T. Spisley, 
a U.S. Army private on active duty who was shot and killed in Durham, North Carolina in 1944 when he refused to obey a back-of-the-bus demand from a bus driver. Since that conversation, efforts have been underway to educate our community about the impact of the private's life and death and to honor his service. On September 22nd, the North Carolina Central University School of Law, the Duke Energy Foundation, and a host of other partners will conduct a day-long symposium which will discuss the impact and repercussions of Spisley's death and similar situations that have occurred around the country and what can be done to redress this present-day situation. This is Shantae McNeil with the Legal Eagle Review, and this is your weekly announcement. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Eagle Review. Thank you so very much for staying with us as we uh, continue uh, this uh, discussion with uh, Dr. Darity, Dr. Uh, Sandy Darity uh, from uh, over at uh, Duke uh, University, where he is the uh, really the founder of the uh, Samuel Divorce Cook Center for Social Equity and. Uh, from my point of view, an expert, uh, obviously the number one spokesperson uh, in this issue of uh, uh, reparations, although he uh, gives credit to a number of other groups and organizations who have uh, historically raised this issue uh, in the uh, in, in the past. Um, and we were just talking about the uh, upsurge in interest uh, in this uh, subject of uh, reparations. But to start us back, uh, Sandy, can you kind of talk about why uh, a handbook uh, is uh, necessary, that you saw a need to give further guidance as to how to move uh, forward toward uh, achieving the uh, goal of reparations? Yeah. Um, in, in the book that Kirsten Mullen and I wrote, From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century, we closed the book with a chapter that's devoted to uh, a description of a plan for reparations for Black American descendants of U.S. slavery. And uh, we we thought at the time that that was not the last word on the subject, uh, that there was a need for more detailed treatment of what a reparations plan actually should look like, and what are the kinds of documents that would be needed to support such a plan? And so uh, with that in mind, uh, I made an effort to try to bring together a group of researchers who had been thinking about these issues, and we formed the Reparations Planning Committee and generated uh, a report. And that report is essentially the content of the Black uh, Reparations Project. Uh, but its its primary purpose is to provide a detailed description of how one might go about doing a reparations project appropriately. Um, and uh, we thought that this was especially necessary because there are a couple of ways in which uh, the reparations movement has gone down what we might refer to as detours from the main course. Um, one of those one of those areas of detours concerns this uh, this array 
of what you described at the beginning of this conversation as uh, this array of local and state so-called reparations initiatives. Uh, and, you know, we're concerned about that because we think that uh, local and state so-called reparations are intrinsically incomplete, inconsistent, and inequitable. They're incomplete because the states and municipalities do not have the wherewithal to finance a reparations project on the scale that would be required to eliminate the racial wealth gap. So the combined budgets of all states and localities in the United States uh, come to about uh, slightly less than $5 trillion. And that's in contrast with a bill of at least $14.3 trillion. Uh, so that 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 accounts for why they'd be incomplete. They're inconsistent because they're not coordinated. And so there's no uh, structure or pattern that provides uh, some some sort of unity to the way in which these decentralized uh, piecemeal reparations projects are being conducted. And they're inequitable because if every, city or locality that adopts something that they're calling reparations does it in a different way it means that the structure of benefits for individual eligible recipients will be quite quite different from place to place and in fact to the extent that there are some states and localities that do nothing at all then you're going to have some cases where people are receiving something like this uh $25,000 housing voucher in Evanston, Illinois, and other places where people get absolutely nothing. And so um, so we think that it's, 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 it's a major mistake to focus on attempting to do uh, reparations for Black American descendants of U.S. slavery at the state or local level. The other detour that is, uh, is, is problematic concerns the legislation um, H.R. 40, which is a bill that has been in Congress for upwards of 30 years now to establish a commission that would provide proposals to Congress for a reparations plan. Uh, and this, this is problematic legislation for two reasons. Uh, the, the bill has a set of structural weaknesses, but also substantive weaknesses. Uh, let me go to the substantive weaknesses first. Um, from the perspective of the uh, of the positions that we advance in the Black Reparations Project, it's essential for a reparations plan to meet four characteristics. First, it must establish who's eligible, it must establish the amount, it must establish who pays, and it must establish what form the payments should take. And so we've argued consistently that in the United States context, the eligible population for African-American reparations must be those Black Americans whose ancestors were enslaved in the United States. Um, in addition, uh, as, as, as I've pointed out in our conversation today or this evening, uh, the uh, amount of, of a reparations bill should be sufficient to eliminate the racial wealth gap, so $14.3 trillion. Third, the federal government must be the payer. And it must be the payer because it's the only level of government that has the capacity to meet a bill of that magnitude 
but also because it's the federal government's policies that have produced the racial wealth differential that we were talking about. And then finally, uh, the, the, the primary form of payments should be direct payments to the eligible recipients, just in the same way as what, in which other victimized communities have been given uh, direct compensation for the harms and atrocities that they face, whether it's uh, the victims of the Holocaust receiving direct monetary payments from the German government, or it's the uh, Japanese Americans who were subjected to mass incarceration during the course of World War II, who received direct payments from the United States government. Now, uh, we think that those four elements are essential to any reparations plan. And if a commission was formed, the legislation should direct the commission to meet those four objectives in any report that they give to Congress for a reparations plan. And H.R. 40 does not do that. It's entirely open-ended to the degree that it would be possible for an H.R. 40 commission to say, well, we need another apology from Congress and that would be reparations. <laughs> um, so so that's, that's the first, that's the substantive flaws. The structural flaws include some very odd provisions in the bill including the fact that the bill in its present uh, incarnation uh, does not mandate that the commission is subject to the Federal Advisory Committee Act. And this means that, in effect, the commission does not have any obligation to make its deliberations public, do everything in private, in the dark, and then produce a report without any kind of consultation or attention necessarily being drawn to its work from the general public. So that's that's the first, first structural issue. Second structural issue is the bill is designed so that the individual members of the commission can receive salaries of up to $170,000 per annum. And, uh, you know, I think we feel fairly strongly that a commission with this type of sacred mission should not have members who receive salaries. They should receive compensation for their, their expenses for serving on the commission, but they should not be paid to do it. Um, I, I think that there's a real issue in thinking about uh, people's willingness to serve on such a commission because they're going to get paid. Uh, I think that's that's real difficulty. So um, there should be a paid staff or salaried staff to support the commission, but the individual commissioners should not be receiving salaries. And so uh, that's a, that's a second structural issue. A third involves the fact that when this legislation was introduced at first, um, it, 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 it was designed so that there would be seven members of the commission three to be appointed by the president of the United States, three to be appointed by the Senate, um, um, the, Senate major uh, the Senate majority leader, and three to be appointed by uh, the president pro tempore. No, and I'm sorry, one to be appointed by the president pro tempore of the Senate. So that would be the total of seven. Now, the present form of the bill has 15 members, including six who were supposed to be representatives of legacy organizations that have been involved in the reparation struggle. And oddly enough, those six would be appointed not by directly by the commission members themselves or by the president or the, 
the, uh, the House Majority Leader, those individuals would be appointed by the administrative director of the commission. So there would be six of them. And the bill provides for a quorum of seven out of 15, which is less than half. So in principle, those six members who were appointed by the administrative director and one other member could form a quorum and proceed to make decisions for the commission in the absence of any other members. And so, um, so we think that, that, that this is a, a, a structurally flawed piece of legislation, uh, but it's also substantively flawed, and we'd like to, uh, to move away from it. So may I jump in for a second? This is Kirsten Mullen, and I wanted, um, I'm just really grateful to be here and apologize for, for joining you in progress. But I wanted to, to say, you know, many uh, of your listeners may not be aware that um, the bill HR 40 has been rewritten several times over its 30 plus year history. Uh, and the revisions have not been to the good. Um, you know, as Sandy was saying, the you know, the number of the commissioners has increased, uh, the salaries have increased, they've added this, uh, this stipulation that they not have to uh, make public uh, the agendas, the minutes, the reports, uh, they don't have to have public hearings, they don't have to gather testimonies, um, you know, they could simply, you know, uh, go through their entire process, however they determine uh, you know, it should be executed and then produce a report and there'd be no opportunity for the American public to comment, to make suggestions. Uh, it would be a done deal. And so I think that's really important. Um, you know, many, many people have not read H.R. 40. And, you know, we would suggest to your listeners, you know, just first and foremost, go online. It's available. It's not hard to obtain and read the document for yourself so that you can know what it is that people are talking about. Uh, and understand that HR 40 is not going to uh, is not going to get us true reparations for Black American descendants of U.S. slavery. Let me uh, just uh, introduce to our audience uh, Kirsten uh, Mullen, who is uh, co-author of the uh, reparations uh, handbook and is also uh, co-author of uh, From Here to Equality. Uh, reparations for Black Americans in the 21st century that uh, Sandy uh, referenced uh, earlier in uh, this discussion. And uh, so we commend you, uh, Kirsten, for uh, your work in uh, producing uh, this uh, latest uh, publication uh, you. as, as you, you so much. join us here. Uh, let me just, you know, just raise, you know, because a, a sticking point uh, that has always, I guess, kind of uh, been on the uh, radar of the uh, reparations uh, movement is this notion of who qualifies, who should yeah. receive uh, the uh, uh, re reparations. Uh, we've talked about uh, who should pay, uh, but uh, we've uh, not uh, talked about uh, who uh, should uh, receive and why. Uh, there is uh, this uh, this category of people who uh, uh, should fall into that uh, uh, payee uh, category. So I'm going to uh, talk with uh, Kirsten uh, about that. Uh, so Kirsten, can you just kind of explain uh, the uh, formulation from the handbook as yeah. to who qualifies? Um, so this is a very important uh, very important point to talk about. 
um, you know, for us, we're talking about the community of people whose ancestors were enslaved in the United States. So Black American descendants of U.S. slavery. Um, the community of eligibility should be individuals who can demonstrate that they are descended from at least one person who was enslaved in the United States, but also uh, prior to the creation of a reparations project or the um, impaneling of a reparations commission, these individuals need to have self-reported on a legal document as Black, African-American, Afro-American, or Negro, uh, because we know there are people who live as white who, in fact, have one uh, ancestor who was enslaved. So we think that, you know, these are the folks whose ancestors were promised 40 acre land grants at the end of the Civil War, um, an asset, a material asset that would greatly have altered uh, their economic position. Um, you know, and had that promise been made, to uh, you know, to the formerly enslaved, we may not be having this conversation today at all. You know, if if their assets uh, had been provided, those forty acre land grants had been provided, and importantly, had that community been protected or armed, you know, if if the U.S. government had either decided to keep the Union Army in place so that they could be protected from, um, you know, um, rapacious. Uh, you know, white supremacists, or if it had been legal for them to arm themselves, then they would have been able to develop that land and importantly, pass along any profits or the land itself to their progeny, you know, to their offspring. So this is why we focus on, you know, the Black American descendants of U.S. slavery as the community of eligibility for true reparations in the United States. Now, in 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 an earlier part of uh, the uh, discussion that we've had this evening, uh, Sandy uh, talked about some of the uh, post-slavery uh, implications that uh, that we're dealing with. For instance, uh, the uh, one hundred and sixty acre contributions uh, to whites who were a part of the uh, Westwood uh, right. expansion as that being a uh, a gift. Uh, from the uh, federal government that uh, helped to create a uh, wealth class uh, in this uh, in this country, as well as uh, uh, more contemporary uh, violations of uh, human rights uh, laws that impact uh, people of of, of color. Uh, why then do you exclude from this uh, calculation those individuals who have been harmed? by those post-slavery uh, uh, incidents of uh, racial discrimination. So we're talking about you know, gener generation over generation over generation of harm. Um, you know, when you're talking about individuals who migrated to this country legally, um, you're looking at folks who came at the earliest uh, after the Civil Rights Act was passed. So that's a full century you know, later. You know, yes, these are individuals who many of them had ancestors who were colonized or enslaved in the Caribbean or across the African diaspora. And they certainly do have a reparations claim to make. But from our point of view, that is a claim that should be laid at the feet of the countries that enslaved and colonized their ancestors. So if you are from Trinidad or from Jamaica or from Antigua, that claim should be taken to the UK. If you are from Haiti, 
that claim should be taken to the French government. Now, that's an interesting case because France forced Haiti to pay it reparations. So not only should Haiti receive that money back, they also should receive interest on those funds. So yes, they have a claim to make. And you know we think that it would be terrific if all of these other Black Americans who are from the diaspora would join in the fight to support Black American descendants of U.S. slavery in their claims in solidarity. I mean, you know, April and, and Al, you all are way too young, and Irv may recall the period, you know, back in the the, the Stone Age. Well, watch yourself now. Well, watch no, yourself. When I watch yourself. <laughs> You know, but at the University of Texas at Austin, I was a member of the African Liberation Support Committee. And we were fighting in solidarity with, um, you know, African nations and Caribbean nations that were fighting for independence, that were fighting for autonomy. Uh, this is the period when um, folks were trying to um, cause uh, their institutions to divest in South Africa uh, as a means of ending uh, apartheid. And, you know, many, many Black people, and not just Black people, but white people and people all over the world joined in that fight. And we say, you know, this is a time for all of those people to come to the aid and support of Black American descendants of U.S. slavery. There is, in fact, an organization called CARICOM that is working to achieve reparations for um, descendants of uh, enslavement in the Caribbean. But they don't include Black Americans in their claim, nor should they. But the reverse is also true. Black Americans of U.S. slavery should not be obligated to include Blacks from across the diaspora in their claim. So the other thing that we need to be aware of is there's a big difference um, in being brought to a country voluntarily. Um, you know, Black and white uh, immigrants, U.S. will say, man, you know, we came to the United States and we saw pictures and we saw movies and we thought, this is an incredible place. You've got all these amazing public services, you've got public parks, you've got all these corporations. All of these things are made possible through the blood, sweat, and tears of Black uh, uh, people who were enslaved in this country. So it seems to me that you would be delighted to join in support for that community to receive reparations. When you migrate to a country, you migrate to its history and to its obligations. So shame on you if you didn't know this was a racist country, you know, and if after you've been here for a few years and maybe your accent is not as strong, maybe you're dressing more similarly to your black neighbors and the local police confuse you, you know, and think of you as a black American and you're mistreated in, in the same way that black Americans in the US slavery are targeted. And then you say, oh, I'm experiencing racism. I should be compensated for that. It just strikes us as odd. <laughs> you know, you 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 come here knowing the situation, but somehow you're thinking you're going to be dealt differently. That you know your 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 case is a special case. You know what I think would be more courageous: uh, take the moral high ground, join the fight work with Black American descendants of U.S. slavery in their fight for reparations. I mean, this is a fight that's over 150 years old now. Um, you know, I think that a win for Black American descendants of U.S. slavery could only bode well for Black people across the diaspora who are seeking reparations from the nations 
that colonized and enslaved their ancestors. You are listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And this hour, we have been talking about Black reparations in the United States. And we are delighted to have once again as our guests, William Darity and Kirsten Mullen. They are the co-authors of From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century and co-editors of the recently published The Black Reparations Project, A Handbook for Racial Justice. We're going to have to take a quick break. We hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. This is Shantae McNeil, and I am a second-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Community Spotlight. On September 22, 2023, in Durham, North Carolina, Triangle Black Tech is hosting a Black Women Founders event. The event will celebrate innovation, diversity, and empowerment, while also providing a monumental tribute to exceptional contributions and achievements of Black women in the tech industry. This event will include food, beverages, and music by DJ Mayor Morrison, all free to the public. This game-changing experience will be held at 411 West Chapel Hill Street, Suite C2, from 6 to 9 p.m. on Friday, September 22nd. This is Shantae McNeil with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking this hour about reparations, black reparations here in the United States. And we have with us as our guest, Kirsten Mullen and William Sandy Darity. They are co-authors of From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century, and co-authors along with Lucas Hubbard of the Black Reparations Project, a handbook for racial justice. Uh, Kirsten, before the break, you were talking about the question regarding who um, should be eligible for reparations if we're talking about reparations here in the United States for those who are ancestors of those who were um, enslaved. The other thing that you've talked about is that this is a 50-year-old, 150-year-old fight that has been going on. You've also, both you and Sandy, talked about H.R. 40, how that um, bill has been around for 30 years. And so um, and you and Sandy, of course, have been engaging in scholarship and research um, for for decades. Where are we? Like, wh- where are we in progress towards getting some real kind of um, change and progress? One of the things that we talked about was states that are engaging in reparation efforts and local communities and cities, um, but 
what you and Sandy really kind of focus on is the reparations that are due by the federal government. Where are we in making real progress? And to the extent that there's still kind of pushback, where are you seeing that pushback? So I think there has been a change. Um, you know, we look especially at uh, the time frame beginning with Marianne Williamson's very courageous decision to put reparations on her presidential platform. Um, you know, while many people did not take her seriously, um, you know, we're fairly certain that her decision led um, Julian Castro to, to talk about reparations, uh, Tom Steyer to talk about reparations. Um, you know, it became uh, a must topic for for candidates. Um, you know, we now are seeing individuals, uh, many individuals talking about inter intergenerational uh, wealth, which is not a topic that was on people's lips. Um, you know, I, I frequently will have, you know, uh, acquaintances talk to me about the racial wealth gap. Um, these are not terms that were commonly used or understood. Uh, you know, people are beginning to recognize that the racial wealth gap uh, is a product of the federal government that it began at the end of the Civil War when, as Irvin was saying, this, uh, the federal government made the decision to give 160-acre land grants to white Americans, including recent immigrants from Europe, while denying the newly emancipated even 40-acre land grants. Um, you know, we know that um, intergenerational wealth, you know, uh, the accumulation of wealth over generations matters this is huge, and uh, it's a very uh, straightforward way to think about white supremacy. You know, this is an asset that, you know, free equity, if you will, that the federal mm -hmm. government uh, allowed white Americans to acquire while actively deaccumulating wealth for Black people. Um, I mean, it's pretty startling. You know, we think one of the reasons that there's so much hue and cry about critical race theory is that the American people are learning more of our actual history and their attitudes are changing. And um, the opposition is saying, oh no, um, you know, we don't wanna hear about this. We don't want people to learn about this. And they certainly don't want young white Americans to learn about that because these are folks who are very active, uh, who are voting. Um, it's interesting when you look at poll data um, in the year 2000, uh, colleagues of ours, um, Dawson and Popoff, Robin and Popoff and Eric Dyson, uh, you know, asked um, a sample of Americans what they thought of uh, monetary reparations for Black American descendants of U.S. slavery. And something like 4% of white Americans were in, in support, 4%. 16 years later, that number had jumped up to about 18%. Now, in a University of Massachusetts Amherst study, we're looking at about 30% and a near majority of white millennials. Um, some people prefer to look at, uh, you know, who's not in support, but in my mind, a 30% is not to be sneezed at. Mm -hmm. um, now, to be clear, we're going to need a significant percentage of white Americans to be behind reparations for it to happen, but the trend is moving in the right direction, and more and more people are talking about it. Um, I had a white uh, girlfriend from high school um, called me the other day uh you know she's read our books she's been looking at many other studies on reparations and she was motivated to look at her own family's history 
And she said to me, oh, Kirsten, this is so depressing. <laughs> you know, she's learning about on her father's side, some of the horrible things that they did uh, in Oklahoma, you know, to make sure that they got land. And she said, I'm just so, um, I'm embarrassed, I'm ashamed. Um, but I said to her, you know, it's important for you to know that. You know, I think I think the other thing that was shocking is that this, what she's learning, what she's uh, researching and discovering goes, you know, flies in the face of the stories that her family told her about these ancestors. And so you begin to wonder, all right, what was my family's investment in, in prettying up or whitewashing these stories? Uh, these are critical uh, conversations for people to have, you know, to face that. Um, you know, these state and local efforts, I think, are part of that same kind of thinking. You know, let's quickly get a win, you know, quote unquote, a win on the table so that we can feel better about this horrible racial wealth gap. Oh my goodness, you know, black households are $850,000 less wealthy than whites. Okay, um, if we can throw some money at that and feel like we can go to bed at night, whew, that's a good thing. Um, so I think there's a, you know, this, this uh, mentality of wanting to um, put things under the carpet as quickly as possible, um, you know, get other people to buy in and say, oh, yes, you know, a $25,000 housing voucher uh, in Evanston, that's reparations. You know, you know, our fear is that you get, you know, we're talking now at least three dozen of these kinds of projects around the country. Um, at some point, the naysayers will, will come to us and say, well, look, you've got projects all over the country. We don't need a national project. But in fact, there are over 108,000 towns, cities, and states in, the, in this country. When you combine them all, the number is 108,000. Um, all of them don't have reparations projects. And the ones that do are very, they, they vary greatly. They, um, uh, you know, they vary in terms of, of who, they, um, who they benefit, how long they last, what kind, amount of money is involved. I mean, these things are, you know, Sandy may have talked about this early. I mean, these, these state and local projects are necessarily incomplete, inconsistent, and inequitable. Mm -hmm. you, know? Um, yeah. you know, I mean, states, they, they don't have the capacity to meet the minimum standard. Um, their budgets are less total. All of these cities and towns and states, annual budget is less than $5 trillion but you need 14.3 trillion on the low end to eliminate this, this debt. Um, and they're inconsistent because these individual cities and local projects are uncoordinated, they're decentralized, um, excuse me, and they're inequitable because they're not uniform. So, you know, they, they pose the danger that incomplete as they are, some will treat them as sufficient and say that federal action just isn't necessary. Well, Kirsten, let me just you know just interrupt you just for a second. Should should we then should we uh, seek to prevent those local efforts where people are learning about the uh, the uh, contours of uh, reparations and why there is a need uh, for them and that there is a debt owed? Uh, so should we stifle uh, those uh, efforts at the uh, local level since they do? Uh, at least raise the issue and broaden the discussion uh, in favor of uh, 
continuing at the federal level where we don't have a timetable in place uh, that uh, there is going to be uh, a successful resolution of that effort. I think it's important to amplify the conversation. Uh, you know, our only wish is that these local efforts would be called something like racial equity initiative or, you know, uh, racial equity projects or atonement and save that language of reparations for the true reparations project. Hmm. Reparations should be this massive major effort on the part of the federal government to provide restitution to the community of eligibility, Black American citizens of U.S. slavery. I see nothing wrong with cities and states deciding to turn an, uh, a critical eye on themselves and to correct the kinds of atrocities and abuses that they have engaged in for decades and in some cases centuries. Um, you know, if they have recognized that um, you know, their 40% of the population in their town is, is Black Americans, but only 10% of them are represented across the commissions, you know, or across elected offices, or uh, receiving city contracts. That's something that you can change. But to us, that's what you should have been doing all along. That's not reparations. You know, uh, Malcolm X uh, has a, a great uh, metaphor that he uses that he, he used, he says, you know, if, if someone stabs you in the back and the, of the nine inch knife and they pull it out three inches, well, that provides a little bit of relief, but you still got six inches of knife in your back. If you pull it out another three inches, you're feeling a lot better uh, or even pull the whole knife out. Ah, but there's still this gaping wound. So all of these individual acts, you know, the project like uh, the housing voucher program at Evanston, um, a project like what the state of California is attempting to do. These are all pulling the knife out at some point, you know, to, you know, to some extent, but only reparations is going to heal that gaping wound. You know, it's like if, if I've been stealing your cattle for five years and somehow you're finally able to, um, you know, to, to, to document that I'm the one who's, I'm the cattle thief and you're able to make me stop. Well, okay, I'm not continuing to steal your cattle, but I still have them, <laughs> you know? So I, I need to make reparations to you. I need to give back those cattle and also give you some money to compensate for, you know, the sales that you might've had over the five or 10 years that I was stealing from you. We're talking about 158 years now uh, and a community that was promised assistance from the federal government, but did not receive it. Maybe you may share just one uh, example about the Homestead Act. Um, we learned from our colleague, uh, Trina Williams, that, um, so there, there are two folks who've been doing some of this work, Jennifer Mueller and Trina Shanks-Williams. So one of them has been looking at just the amount of land that was involved, um, you know, in this project. And the other was looking at, you know, what do people actually do with it? And so um, in one extraordinary case, um, land was given to a, a white family in the panhandle of Texas uh, around 1880. This is that sort of rectangular part of Texas at the top, those 20, 26 counties. And, um, you know, this is land that you could subdivide, you could lease it, um, you could live on it and use any lumber, any uh, wildlife, any water rights, all of that was yours to use, to sell, um, at, you know, at your discretion. Um, this family decided that they would lease the land so immediately they're receiving an income stream from this, this, this largesse from the federal government. All right. So moving a, a few years ahead, the patriarch 
uh, dies. His widow decides that she will move to Austin, Texas with their eight children to give them an opportunity to go to university. So six of the eight children get a degree um, and they're, they're debt-free because she can afford it. And, um, and then the, 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 the widow dies and the eight children decide to continue to lease the land and divide the profits eight ways. Um, then in 1980, so a full 100 years after the land grant was, uh, was patented, natural gas is discovered on the property. And the profit is such that in the first year alone, $100,000 comes to them. So it's like getting a monthly dividend check from the federal government. And we're not saying the federal government shouldn't do that, you know, should not have done it, but black Americans also should have benefited. That's mm -hmm. what we're saying. Um, and reparations would help to bring this black community up to the levels of wealth of black, of white Americans. Mm -hmm. So much um, information. I wish we could, we absolutely could continue to ask you questions. Um, you and, and Sandy, you all are doing such important work. Um, we are coming to the top of the hour though, so we're gonna have to end it, but we need to have you back because there's so much more to kind of talk about. And I think the point that both you and Sandy have raised is, there are deliberate efforts to try to prevent the teaching of accurate American history, the teaching of the impact of the federal government's policies and other governmental uh, policies that have impacted to our detriment the Black community. And this, of course, plays into, as you have so eloquently shared with us, issues about um, intergenerational wealth, the racial wealth gap, um, and all supports and undergirds the argument for reparations. And you can't get to the point of real progress and movement without having the education, which is why the scholarship that you and Sandy and so many others that you all have named is so vitally important. Um, we love having you as a guest on the show and, and hopefully we'll have an opportunity to have you come back in the not too distant future. Thank you. Yeah, we're, so, always, we're always happy to come on your show. So <laughs> please do keep us in mind. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we'd like to thank again, William, Sandy, Darity, and Kirsten Mullen. They are authors of the wonderful From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century, and the recently published The Black Reparations Project, a handbook for racial justice where Kirsten and Sandy and Lucas Hubbard are co-editors. We encourage you to get both of these publications, to read them, to understand, and to share that information with your friends and family. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you have enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And if you miss this show on Sunday, you can find us on the Legal Eagle Review podcast. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.